Thank you for listening to this sermon from Goodwill Church, located in New York's Hudson Valley. Goodwill Church is on a mission to be a hub of revival in the Northeast and beyond. For more information about our church, please visit goodwillchurch.org. Now, here's the sermon. So we're beginning Revelation chapter 1, verses 1 through 8. Listen to the word of the Lord. The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show to his servants the things that must soon take place. He made it known by sending his angel to his servant John, who bore witness to the word of God and to the testimony of Jesus Christ, even to all that he saw. Blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy, and blessed are those who hear and who keep what is written in it, for the time is near. John to the seven churches that are in Asia, grace to you and peace from him who is and who was and who is to come. From the seven spirits who are before his throne and from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead and the ruler of kings on earth. To him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood and made us a kingdom, priests to his God and Father, to him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Behold, he is coming with the clouds, and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him. And all tribes of the earth will wail on account of him, even so. Amen. I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. The word of the Lord. Our Father and our God, as we come before you, we ask for your wisdom, for your blessing to be upon us. We ask that you would enable us to sit under your word, to be changed by your word, by the power of your spirit. Do your work in us now. May this be a time of worship as we think and feel Consider and apply your word. May it be to your glory, and we pray this in your name, Jesus. Amen. So, Revelation, what a challenging book it has often been, at least uh, for the last 150 years or so. Let me ask you a question. When you think about Revelation, when you heard we were doing the study, uh, where did you land? What were you thinking? I tend to believe that there's two common views of Revelation. That's not just me alone. Many people have observed this sort of polar opposite take. Now, there's in-betweens, of course. Uh, but for a lot of people, Revelation is this. It's impossible to understand. It's a book that just seems so otherworldly, so disconnected, so confusing, so intimidating, they just don't get it, and therefore it becomes, without application, it becomes irrelevant to them, and they just kind of put it aside and say, well, let the experts hash through that and fight about it, we don't get it. Anybody kind of feel that way or know somebody who feels that way? Good, I've got a room full of people who don't feel that way. That'll be fun. The other view is the opposite, that they demand an interpretation for every nuance and every detail that is in the book of Revelation. 
And interestingly enough, this often is accompanied with attempts to apply or make interpretation through current events, events that happen in their generation, in their time. That becomes a problem too. That's the polar opposite. Now sure, there's views in between, but this tends to be the two camps that a lot, a lot of people land on when it comes to the book of Revelation. I'd like to offer a third view as we jump in. Well, here we go. Here's the third view. A book of blessing. Now you might think, well, that's a little oversimplified, but it doesn't make it untrue. Revelation is a book of blessing. In fact, there are no less than seven blessings articulated throughout the book of Revelation. Seven, of course, is a significant number in the book of Revelation. It's a significant number in Scripture, and oftentimes it's a number that has a, that has a symbolic meaning of completion, grounded in the very creation itself. God made the earth in six days, and the seventh day he rested because he was finished, complete. And so seven has this complete idea. Quite a few numbers have the idea of completion uh, connected to them. But as we think about this book, and as we jump in, and we're thinking about maybe where you land in that spectrum, let me give you something else to think about. Maybe you're familiar with this verse, 2 Timothy. It says, all scriptures breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. So I put this up here because if Revelation is in fact scripture, and let's just put that to bed now, yes, it is scripture, then therefore it too must be breathed out by God and it too must be useful, that is profitable for teaching and for reproof, for correction and for training in righteousness. This has to be part of the lens of how we look at this book if we're going to see it as part of God's word. It must be this. So we want to keep this in mind. Now before we jump in, we've got that. Let me just give you two more things to think about. One is genre. Genre is just the the means by which we understand how something is written, the style that it's written in. Revelation is apocalyptic. In fact, we talked a little bit about this when we looked at Mark chapter 13. We noted that it too has elements of apocalyptic in it and also elements of prophecy. Well, Revelation has those as well. You might remember that apocalyptic has a couple of things in it. It talks about the end. It talks about things that are very foreign and otherworldly. It always has an intermediary. In this case for John, there is an angel. In fact, we'll see in a minute that there's, there's quite a bit of it. So. And then pr- prophecy has a number of things, including foretelling, where the prophet speaks about things that are to come. And forthtelling, which is, here's a big distinction here, where the prophet speaks about things that are now, present, and today. And he exhorts, compels, and attempts to convict and bring about change and repentance. That's the here and the now. We saw that in Mark 13 as well, with all those imperatives about what to do, to endure to the end, that kind of exhortation. That's here in Revelation as well. And then lastly, it's a letter. It contains letters seven of them, but it's also a letter. The whole thing's a letter. We're going to see that as well this morning. And these are really helpful things to think about when it comes to how it is that we interpret what we're reading. 
We don't interpret poetry literally. We recognize the symbols of colors and numbers and things like that. In this context, there's a certain dynamic in which we must recognize these things as having a symbolic component to it. So let me say one more thing before we jump into the text itself. And I'm trying to be quick about this because the way we're approaching Revelation is that that we'll be preaching it on Sundays, chapters 1 through 5, and then we're going to go to the end and look at 20, 21, and 22. But in between, and for the whole book, actually, uh, Pastor Marcus and I are teaching the class from beginning to end on Wednesday nights, and it's recorded, and so you're, you're welcome to go and turn to there to get a little bit more detail about this. I'm giving you the short version, but I want to give you just a little glimpse about the history of how the church has interpreted this book, because I think that's really helpful, because we have a, we have a, a way of doing this, and, and we're not thinking broadly historically. We're, we tend to think modern. So here's something to think about. In the early, early church, they're developed with the the patristics, the fathers, in the first 500 years, they developed pretty much two primary views of the book. One was what we might call a premillennial bill, a view, which is that there's a literal thousand years that will come, and there'll be a a literal thousand-year kingdom. The other majority view was what we call the recapitulation view. This is the view that St. Augustine developed This is the view that Jerome, maybe you've heard the name Jerome, he wrote the Vulgate, the Latin Bible, that these early fathers held to this view, what we might call an amillennial view or a recapitulation, where they're looking at all the visions and saying, these are repeated visions with a little bit of different imagery to speak to the entirety of the church down through the ages. That comes under some changes, not in the time of the medieval scholars. No one deals with it. They just recognize that that's the position. Those are the two positions, the majority position, the minority position, but both strong positions. In the time of the Reformation, a, a view of, of a couple other views developed, the historical view, which sort of looked at the whole book of Revelation and said it's kind of an overlay for the timeline of church history. And that's fraught with problems because, well, what ends up happening is that Every generation, for the few generations that held to that view, always laid the, the book of Revelation over the timeline of church history and placed themselves near the end. They assume, well, we must be in chapter 17 or 18 or 19 because it must be the end because that's what every generation does. Every generation is drawn to come to the end, to see things as this is the culmination. I say that a lot to people. I say, you know, we've been in the last days since the time of Jesus. And they go, yeah but now we're really in them. Okay. (laughs) Paul would say you've really been in them, and Jesus would say you've really been in them since his first coming. And I get it. I get the temptation, I get the draw, and I get the influence, and I I don't want to dismiss that. It's really important that we we clarify that. Uh, Another view was the view that the Catholic Church took up, which was called the preterist view, which means past, which means everything that you read about Revelation has already happened. It's history. And in large part, that was driven by a really bad exegetical exegetical model, which was the Protestants were calling the Pope the Antichrist. And so they said, well, we don't really like that. So why don't we just say, well, everything's already happened, so he can't be the Antichrist. (laughs) Well, that's handy. (laughs) That view carries, uh, so we have those views, but it's not until we get to the 19th century that we're introduced to the view of dispensationalism. That's a new thing that happens. It comes on the scene in the 19th century by a man named John Nelson Darby. And it, 
It's taken up by uh, uh, C.I. Schofield in his reference Bible. Um, how many people are familiar with the, the Schofield reference Bible? Have a copy of the Schofield reference Bible. Uh, well, that's good. Oh, Jacob has one. Okay. So, so uh, in short, the views of, of dispensationalism were developed by a man who was an Anglican minister, who uh, 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 John Nelson Darby, who was kind of unhappy with Anglicanism and the hierarchy of the church, developed this theology, um, and um, it really didn't take off much in the UK, developed it in the United Kingdom. But when it came overseas and came to America with Schofield, it spread like wildfire. So in 1909, Schofield uh, publishes, because of friends he knows, he publishes his reference Bible. This is the first study Bible that comes on the market in America, well, ever, but the first study Bible since the Geneva Bible of the 1600s. So there's no study Bible around since the Geneva Bible. And Americans were not exactly knocking down the doors of publishers to get their hands on the Geneva Bible. But boy, did the Schofield Bible spread. It was published in 1909. Three years later, it was published again, republished, and they sold three million copies immediately. And there's no competition until 1984 when the NIV puts out its study Bible. Which means, in America, the teachings of Schofield, which are the Bible with all of the dispensational study notes, has 75 uncontested years in American evangelicalism. Sinks in deep. And the ethos behind that are things like the, the demand for a separation between Israel and the church and how that lays out and how we interpret Revelation. Largely as something that's wholly future and not relevant for now, after the letters. Vision, letters, and then everything else happens later. Now, that doesn't necessarily have to be wrong, but it's a picture, historical picture of how it is that this book has been interpreted through the ages of the church. So that's a whole lot to give you um, and hopefully you can listen to it. And again, I encourage you, uh, listen to the, the teachings that are happening on Wednesday. We do a more, more detailed uh, unpacking of those things. But I just wanted to give you the quick version of that to just kind of get a sense of this, uh, to help you to see other views as we jump into this book that's often um, very controversial, often in the last 150 years or so, in a very controversial book. So with all of that, which was a lot, we'll kind of jump in and take a look at our opening verses. And what I want to drive home to you as you look at these opening verses is the intent of John under the inspiration of the Spirit as he opens up this book, which is a letter with apocalyptic and prophetic components to it. What's the intent? What's happening here? Why is he writing this? And so the first thing we see is that this is the revelation of Jesus Christ. That word is apocalyptic or apocalypse. And all of that means is to uncover. That's a really good translation, to reveal. So in our culture, we use apocalypse to mean disaster, right? Cataclysmic global disaster. That's what we tend to think of when we hear that word. Yes? Where does that come from? 
movies in Hollywood, which were, by the way, don't take this the wrong way, but largely influenced in terms of those kinds of things from the dispensational movement. How many here can remember, if you're of my generation, uh, Hal Lindsey's The Late Great Planet Earth? So Hal Lindsey was very influenced by dispensationalism. He went to Dallas Theological Seminary, wrote that book in the late 60s. Now, I grew up in a nominally Catholic church, and we had that book, and my nominally Catholic parents were reading that book, which speaks volumes. In the 90s, the Left Behind series came out with all of its variations and movies and everything, and it taught things like apocalypse means the end, right? All the word actually means in Greek is uncovering, revealing. That's all it means. So we have our first uh, component, genre component. It's a revelation. It's apocalyptic. The revelation of Jesus Christ. Now, by the way, I said that there's a, an intermediary component that often happens with apocalyptic literature. Well, it's the revelation of Jesus Christ, which God, and in this case, that's God the Father, gave him to show his servants, that's you and I, the things that must soon take place. And you'll notice at the end of our, our verse 3 here, that says, that for the time is near. There's a, uh, we'll put those things together and think about those in a moment. So it's the revelation of Jesus Christ and scholars debate about whether that means that Jesus is the source of it or it's about him. And the answer to that is yes. <laughs> but it's really, Revelation is really not solely Christological as much as it is Trinitarian. There's a deeply Trinitarian component to the entirety of the letter. So it's not solely Christological. It's Father, Son, and Spirit. So the revelation, the apocalypse of Christ given by God to him to show his servants the things that must soon take place. And here's what he said. He made it known by sending an angel to his singular servant, John. John's one of us. He's a servant. We're the servants, plural. You'll notice that. God gave it to show him to his servants. That's all the people of God, all of his children, all the members of the church, the things that must soon take place. He made it known by sending his angel to his servant, John, who told us what happened, who bore witness to the word of God and to the testimony of Jesus Christ, even to all that he saw. So the revelation is something that is revealed to John, and then he writes it down. We see that later on. He's told to write it down. We don't get that in this morning's text, but we get it in chapter 1. That's another distinction, right? The prophets get the word. They speak to the people. Uh, writers of apocalyptics write down what they see. That's, I mean, we, we read uh, prophetic literature as written down as well, but it's not first written down. It's first spoken. John is not telling this to people. He's told to write it down. So those are some differences there. Now what about this soon to take place thing? So, boy, is there some controversy about this. Not that that comes as any great surprise. But here's the point. You could take it more than one way. Those who hold to that historical view, the preterist view that all this has already happened, love this verse. Because it says, look, it's soon to take place, which means it's already done. But here's the thing. Soon to take place means the things that are the birth pains of the end, to use the language of Mark 13. You remember when Jesus said earthquakes and famines are going to happen and war is going to happen, but it's not the end? It is but the birth pains, the inauguration of the end that begins with the second or the first coming of Christ, begins with Christ's first coming, and culminates in his second coming. 
So soon to take place is biblical language for the inauguration of the last days, the things that take place in the last days to usher in the end, which John is in, and he's been in since Jesus has come, but in his day, it's a new transition. He's the first generation, right? So this has to do with that, and and before you jump to, well, I don't know if I buy that, that's fine, but biblical language uses terms like soon uh, loosely. I mentioned this last week, John in his uh, first letter says that the hour is near, the final hour is near, Uh, and that was 2,000 years ago, and the final hour is near. It was then, it is now, and so these things are soon to take place in the first generation and soon to take place in the 21st generation, and I'll get to that in a minute, but in, in essence, why that is is something that we'll see, Lord willing, next week is because John, too, is part of the tribulation. I just give you a little glimpse here. Just say it. John says this. I, John, verse 9, your brother and partner in the tribulation. So John is, is a, a, he's partaking in the tribulation in his day. He's not waiting for a future tribulation. He's in it in his day in the first century. And we remain in it in the 21st century. And so soon to take place is this broad term that speaks about the things that take place that bring the culmination and the second coming. To bear. John is the witness. He bore witness to this, all that he saw. And then we get these words. Blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy. And blessed are those who hear and who keep what is written in it, for the time is near. Now, a couple things about that that are important. Number one, I told you that this is a book of blessing, that there are seven blessings. Here's the first. So John doesn't waste much time getting to the intent here. It's a book of blessing. And what he means by this is don't just rotely read it aloud. I asked this question on Wednesday night because we were looking at these verses then. How many of you read aloud ever? Anybody read aloud? I read aloud a lot, even when I'm alone. Occasionally somebody will come into the house while I'm reading out loud alone, which makes me look less than stable. But um, you get a whole lot more out of something when you read it out loud. In the Greek, the word out loud is not there. It's not actually in the Greek. Because it was understood in the first century that when a letter was sent to the churches, it was meant to be read aloud corporately to the church. They would exchange letters. Which, by the way, speaks to something interesting about the seven churches in Asia, the literal churches. John could have just sent one letter and have it spread out. And there's probably a whole lot more than seven churches in Asia, but seven is the number. Again, there's a a symbolic component that we must recognize when we look at that. But John says, blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy, and blessed are those who hear and who keep what is written in it, for the time is near. So, I want us to kind of put that in the back burner because I want us to be thinking about that. In fact, I hope that this will be the thing that you think about as you partake of fellowship with one another. How is it that I am to not just read this word aloud and put it away, but to keep it? Uh, I've talked about this a number of times and I'll mention in passing here. Uh, Hearing is a central part of, of Jewish culture in terms of their faith, the Shema Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one, is central to Judaism. And so that in, inherent in that hearing is obedience. 
And so this is articulated clear. Don't just hear it, but obey it, keep it, uphold it. How do you do that? In other words, this is something that's deeply prophetic, right? Because there's an exhortation here, a charge before you. This isn't just telling you about the end. John's saying, if you read this and you not just hear it, but you keep it, you'll be blessed by it. You, those who hear this in the first century, and you, those who hear this in the 21st century, you will be blessed by that. There's an exhortation here, a, a command here to do that. Hear and keep this. And so how do we do that? And that's something that we want to keep in mind here because John is saying there's blessing to be gleaned from this. This is not a doomsday uh, book with only doomsday in mind. There is blessing Six more are coming. They come later on in the book. I believe it starts in chapter 14 and moves towards the end. So we get a big chunk where we don't have it, but it begins with blessing. So we have revelation, but we also have prophecy. There's genre number two. Blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy. So how is it a prophecy? Well, because John says it's a prophecy. And he's going to say it again at the end of the book in, in chapter 22, verse 10. Just don't add or take away from the words of this prophecy. So we have these two components, two of the three given to us right here. Here comes the third one. That's my add-in letter. That's not here. Verse 4 says this, John of the seven churches that are in Asia, grace to you and peace. So before we get to the, the, the writer of the letter or the one who is ultimately coming from, just simply note, this is a letter. This is how letters begin. This is kind of, I just thought of this. Is this a Dear John letter? I probably shouldn't have said that out loud. But anyway, <laughs> it's not a Dear John. It's from John. But you don't, John doesn't say Dear Seven Churches. He just says John to the churches. So it's the writer to the recipient. But that is letter form. So this is inescapably a letter, but it's not just seven letters. The entirety of the book is a letter. The whole thing is to the churches. John to the seven churches that are in Asia, grace to you and peace. And this is kind of an interesting thing because a lot of scholars debate about this, that they think that Paul might have been the first one to add a little color to the traditional opening of a letter. It used to just be John to the churches or, you know, John to the to the elect lady later on. We, you know, we're not later on in uh, John 3. Now, Paul often adds grace and peace, but it's a part of the opening of the letter. It is plainly a letter. But now let's look at who it is from. John is writing to the seven churches, and now he's going to tell you grace to you and peace from who? From him who is and who was and who is to come. From the seven spirits who are before the throne and from Jesus, the faithful witness, firstborn of the dead, ruler of the kingdoms, of the kings on earth. So we'll go back and do that slowly. Because there's a lot to consider there. Grace to you and peace from him who is and who was and who is to come. Now, we have read and we're going to get to the reference to Exodus. Remember, I said to you, Revelation has about 70% of its book is allusions to the Old Testament. No quotations, but allusions. So keep that in mind when you're, when you're thinking, I want to take Revelation and move forward and look at today. The writer of Revelation doesn't do that. The writer of Revelation writes and says, my goal is to look backwards, to look at the Old Testament. 70%. 70% of the letter does that. 
Here again is another Old Testament reference. It's Exodus. This is the covenant name that God gives to Moses at the burning bush, the I am. It's a reference to that. Because what is the I am? Are you ready to be jazzed and excited about the I am? You ready? It's a verb. That fell on deaf ears. It's a verb. I am. It's a, it's a present verb. That's all it means. Which basically means God is eternal. He's not just past or future. He's ever being. That's the idea of I am. He is, it's the covenant name because it's the name that God gives to Moses. He reveals that name to Moses. But it's covenantal, but it speaks to his, his utter independence. There's an old-fashioned word for that. It's called the saiety. Uh, but it speaks to his, his lack of need of anything, his sovereignty, his eternality. There's lots of places in Scripture. Uh, if you listen to the class lecture, you'll see that in Isaiah uh, in, the, in the 40s in particular. We read a lot about um, Isaiah speaking about the God who is and who was, uh, the eternality nature. There's none other like him. Um, I don't want to take the time to quote those today, but I want to draw your attention to that. You can listen to that. But I do want to draw your attention to one other thing here. This name doesn't merely speak to his eternality or his sovereignty. It does those things, but it does something else. It does something inherently gospel. Inherently gospel. Because it's not just the one who was and who is and forever will be. It's that, but there's more to it. It's the one who is and the one who was and the one who is to come. The return of God to gather his people is at the very core of the gospel itself. It's what gives us hope, eternal hope, heavenly hope, resurrection hope, or eschatological hope, if you like the challenging word, right? He is to come. There is great fundamental gospel hope in that. He is to come. But I said before that this is not merely Christological, it is Trinitarian. So here we get the Father, but then we get the Son. It's not just from, from the grace and peace from him who is and who was and who is to come, but also from the seven spirits who are before the throne. Who is that? Believe it or not, there's a good bit of debate about this. But let me tell you that the seven spirits, again, seven a number of fullness and completeness speaks to the fullness of the Spirit, the Holy Spirit, the third person in the Trinity, before the throne. Now, Scripture does, in fact, give us new revelation, but this is not new revelation that would counter the rest of revelation of Scripture. If somehow we learn for the first time at the end of the Bible that God is saying, actually, I have seven spirits, literally, that counters the nature of the Spirit that we read about through the rest of Scripture. There's three persons, not nine. Is that what it would be? My math is terrible, right? So person of the Father, person of the Son, and then the seven persons of the Spirit, that is nine. There's not, that's complete heresy. The seven Spirit speaks to the fullness of the Spirit. And think about it, it's in the context of something that's inherently Trinitarian. The eternality of the Father, the presence and power of the Spirit before the throne, and from Jesus Christ. The Father, the Spirit, and the Son. This is deeply Trinitarian. 
Now, Jesus Christ, from Jesus Christ, we get some descriptors here. The faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead, and the ruler of kings on earth. And there's some things to think about here, too, really briefly. The faithful witness um, is something that we're going to see later on towards the end of the book. It's something we're going to see shortly in the letters, because the letters come from him, the specific letters to the churches. But it's also something that echoes from the Psalms. This is language of the Psalms as well. I believe it's um, I believe it's Psalm 89. I, I didn't write it down for the class, and I didn't write it down for here. Is it Psalm 89? Yes. So uh, Psalm 89, 30, verse 37 says, Like the moon, it shall be established forever, a faithful witness in the skies. And this is just echoed language. This is language that we hear from the Psalms. So there's another Old Testament allusion just right here. But he's not just that. And remember, I said this is something inherently gospel. There's a gospel component to the coming back of the Father. There's a gospel component to the faithful witness and, of course, to the firstborn of the dead. This is an articulation of the gospel. This, too, is central to our hope. He's the firstborn of the dead. He died and came back to life, which means we have a hope of dying but coming back to life. The the language that the book of Revelation actually uses is the second death. We don't experience the second death because of the shed blood of Jesus Christ and our faith in him. That's the core of the gospel. He's the firstborn of the dead. He died to conquer dead and was raised again to give us life. And notice this last one, an interesting third category to add to Jesus, the ruler of kings on earth. Well, that's an interesting one. What does that speak to? Well, it speaks to sovereignty, but it also speaks to the present reality of this letter for the first century. Because in the first century, what John is saying to the church, who is under the oppression of the kings of the earth, particularly the kings in Rome, he's saying he is the ruler over them, presently, in the first century. And I think we can safely assume that he remains the ruler over the kings of the earth today, in the 21st century, and everywhere in between. This is a letter that's for every generation, and this speaks to that as well. You not had enough gospel? Good, because there's more. Is this about the gospel? Here it is. To him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood. So there are places in the letter where things are plain. This is plain. This is gospel. This is the the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead, the ruler of the kings on earth. To him who loves us, God loves us. This is his, he loves us and he has, as a result of that, freed us, redeemed us, purchased us back uh, from our sins by his blood. And notice what it says here, and made us a kingdom, priest to his God, which is the Exodus 19 reference, the call to worship we get from here, right? That the, the nation of Israel was made to be a kingdom of priests, to be a witness to the nations as a whole. That is the church. But firstly, you'll notice there's a comma here. So he, the one who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood and made us a kingdom, pause, that's something really important to get. This speaks to the corporate nature of our changed status as a result of the work of the gospel and the faith that we place in that gospel. You now belong to a different kingdom, to his kingdom. And that speaks to the nature of the kingdom, but then he says, 
priests to his God and Father, which speaks to the action of the kingdom. What do priests do? They're the mouthpiece of God. They speak to the people for God. They witness and give testimony, right? That's our charge. And so there's a, the essence and nature of our, our status as belonging to the kingdom of God and our role or function or action in this priesthood. So to him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood and made us a kingdom, priests to his God and Father, and, and get this, because I said this before, I'm going to say it again. Worship is all over this book. If I haven't said it before, I said it before worship service, so I might not have said it now. Worship is everywhere in the book. Lots of themes of worship in the book of Revelation. Not just a doomsday letter. Lots of places where the saints worship God. And we don't have to wait long. Here it is. To him who loves us and has freed us from our sins and made us a kingdom priest to his God, to him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Worship. To him has, who has done what he has done through the gospel to inaugurate us into his kingdom and to act as his citizens, as his children, as his priests to the people of God, to the one who has ushered us in freely out of his grace and mercy and love for us, belongs all worship. Because he alone is the creator and we are the creatures. To him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Worship. That's what we're here to do. That's what we're here to do. We're not here to figure out the book. We're not here to learn. We are here for that, but that's secondary. We are primarily here as creatures who come to gather together at the apex of our week and worship our Creator. John wraps up his opening with these words Behold, he is coming in the clouds, or with the clouds, and that is clearly a reference to Daniel. So I don't want to say there isn't any. There's lots of Daniel references. Here's one of them. But it also has a little bit of an echo of the opening of the book of Acts. Because the angel says, what are you waiting around for? He's going to come back the same way, in the clouds, right? So this is a second coming reference to him who is coming with the clouds. And every eye will see him, even those who pierced him. And all the tribes of the earth will wail on account of him, even so, Amen. So there's a sense in which if you're in the first generation, you're thinking you're under the oppression of those who pierced him. And this is a word of encouragement for you, that he's sovereign over them, right? All the tribes of the earth, everybody will wail on account of him when he comes. That's a scary thing. And that's okay. In the Old Testament, we're, we're charged to have a fear of the Lord. It's a healthy thing. It's what keeps us in line it's what calls us to endure. It's what puts our, our focus in the right place. It is a fearful thing when the Lord comes again. And if you don't fear it, you don't know the Lord. And that's, a, that's, that's true, right? Because if we go outside these walls, they don't fear it. They have no concern for that whatsoever. It's the Christian, ironically, who has the saving blood of Jesus Christ, who has a certain sense of reverence and fear for that. That's what it is to be in the manifest presence of God. It's not he's my best buddy and we cuddle up and watch Netflix. He is the Lord and he is sovereign and we are creatures and fall before him and worship. He alone is worthy of that, of dominion and glory forever and ever. And when he comes, 
we are going to have to, to recognize that. We will fall before him and bow in worship. Lastly, we get this, I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord, who is, the Lord God who is and who was, and who is to come, the Almighty. An encouraging wrap-up here, because what John is saying is he's speaking again to the sovereignty of God. And so as he gets ready to sort of unpack all that he saw and bear witness to that, let's not forget who this is from, and that this is for you and that there's blessing to be gleaned. Who's it from? It's from the Alpha and the Omega. Now, maybe you know this. That's the first and last letters in the Greek alphabet, and that's, that is a, a way of speaking to his sovereignty and control over all things. He is the beginning and the end, as we're going to sing about shortly. He is the beginning and the end, which means he has authority and control and sovereignty over all things in between. Right? I think the illustration I used on Wednesday was um, he's the A and the Z, but that doesn't mean that he skips the other 24 letters. Right? They're, they're, it's a book ending, which means that the entirety of redemptive history is under his control. He sovereignly ordains and orchestrates all of his purposes to bring about his people, to, to, to restore his people. And that's his purpose, right? to bring glory to himself, and he does it through redeemed people. He is the one who is and who is to come. He is the Almighty. Be comforted in that. So as we kind of wrap up, and I'm not going to put it on the screen, I just want us to think a little bit about that. I'm going to pray. Jacob and Natasha are going to come up, and we're going to sing a song of response. And then we're going to talk a little bit about food, and I'm going to say a blessing, and then we're going to, I'm going to give you something else to think about, because I want us to have our reflection time over a meal. As we break bread together, we'll have that reflection time. So I'm not going to give it to you right this minute but I've kind of given you a hint at it already. But as they come up, I want us to think a little bit about what have we covered here? It's not just a bunch of information. How does this come together? That this is indeed apocalyptic. There's some symbolism to be considered here. It's prophetic. There's exhortation. There's, it's a book of blessing. And that there's this deep, deep emphasis of John as he opens up this letter to the seven churches, that is to the entirety of the church, that this is grounded in the gospel. That the way we think about how we understand this, this book is that which God has done for his recipients, who are what? Those who are loved by him, freed by him, made a kingdom by him, made priests by him. This is the center of the letter in many ways. This is how we read the letter. We keep this in mind. This is what John is saying right up front. And so we want to be encouraged by that. Let's not forget, as we get into the weeds of some of the imagery, that John begins with a gospel presentation, a clear, clear gospel presentation. That's where the letter begins. That's where we need to always remember to go back to. Let me pray, and let's sing. Father, thank you. Thank you for the gospel. Thank you for your word. Thank you for this word. We pray, Lord, now that you would uh, inhabit our praises as we respond in song. Let me pray this in your name, Jesus. Amen. Amen. Let's stand together and sing in response. Thank you again for listening to today's sermon. For more resources and information about Goodwill Church, visit goodwillchurch.org. God bless.